Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Before we get into today's case, I did want to give a massive trigger warning. This case is about a religious cult, and a lot of the horrifying things that happened within it involve sexual assault of adults and children. It is a really tough case to hear about, and as always, I won't be going into graphic detail or giving any unnecessary details, but if you are not in a place to hear about religious cult activity and all of the other things that go along with that, please take care of yourself and I will catch you in the next episode. I really believe that it is important to tell the stories for the sake of survivors and to help us all be a little bit more aware of how these things happen and the fact that they happen all the time. And I'm going to do my best to tell this story with sensitivity for the people who were forever impacted by the terrors that took place within the Zion Society. I had the incredible opportunity to work with Mike King, the author of the book Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. Here it is. I had the opportunity to work with Mike on a project last year, and that is when I learned about this cult. I, and I'm sure many of you are going to say the exact same thing, I had never heard of this, and it happened in my home state, and I cannot believe that this is the first time I'm ever hearing about this and learning the details because it is absolutely wild. So the author of this book, Mike King, worked in the law enforcement field for over 40 years. He is a very skilled criminal profiler and worked specifically with cult activity. Mike also has a YouTube channel called Profiling Evil, where he goes over past cases, current true crime cases, and many different topics surrounding true crime and profiling in general. I know there's a lot of you who are subscribed to my channel who found me through Mike's channel, so thank you for being here. If you have never seen Mike's channel, I highly recommend it. He is incredible at what he does. Mike was the lead detective on the task force that took down a cult in Ogden, Utah in the early 90s, and in the 30-plus years since then, he hasn't forgotten the victims involved. His book is wonderfully written and a really good read. I highly recommend that you check it out. Um, I believe it's available for free on the Kindle Unlimited app, um, or you can order it through, or you can order the actual book through Amazon. I will have that linked in the description for this episode. This book was my main source for this episode, and um, reading about it in Mike's words is fascinating. At the beginning of the book, there is an author's note that says, quote, Some stories are hard to read, let alone write. It doesn't mean that they should not be told. This book is one of those stories. This memoir chronicles my investigation into a deviant religious cult of child sex abuse. To ignore, avoid, or pretend such events do not occur is not helpful to victims, potential victims, or society in general. Awareness is the first step to healing and protecting victims and ultimately bringing perpetrators to justice. Extreme details of the case have been left out. All that is important to know is that the events happened, end quote. And one more quick side note before we get into it. Some of the names have been changed in Mike's book to protect the victims and the people involved in this cult. I will be using the names used in this book because while some of them are listed other places publicly, I want to respect that privacy as much as possible. On July 10th, 1991, a woman named Erin Anderson walked into the county attorney's office in Ogden, Utah, and asked to speak with a detective. Detective Mike King was told that she'd been waiting for hours to talk to someone, so he invited her into his office, unsure what to expect. Erin was in her mid-twenties, well-dressed, and very put together. She sat across from Mike and made a shocking confession. Erin told Mike that she had been involved with a cult that was sexually abusing children. Mike couldn't believe what he was hearing. He said, quote, I had handled confessions before. This was not the first, nor would it be the last. But usually, confessions came with carefully planned interviews and oftentimes just plain luck. Rarely did someone offer one without some sort of provocation, end quote. 
He gathered his composure and he read Erin her Miranda rights. She said she understood her rights and that she had this horrible guilt and she needed to come clean about everything. For years, there had been rumors and gossip about an alleged cult dwelling in Ogden. People said that there was a group of religious zealots that had formed their own offshoot and were practicing polygamy and buying up all of the property in North Ogden to build their compound. Curious people would drive through the neighborhood to see the perfectly manicured lawns and elaborate landscaping trying to catch a glimpse of this supposed cult. Other people in the neighborhood started to put signs in their lawns that said, quote, we are not one of them. This neighborhood was kind of interesting because there was only one access road and people spread the rumors around that the cult kept surveillance on every car and pedestrian entering and exiting the neighborhood. It all sounds ridiculous and impossible, and over the years, there were people that wanted to move out of this area because they were so freaked out about the allegations being thrown around and were tired of people driving through their neighborhood, like, spying on everyone. But when they tried to sell their houses, it was really, really hard because no one wanted to move into a neighborhood where there was an alleged cult taking up all of the space. For years, there was no proof. So police would drive through the neighborhood to do basic checks, but there had never been anything to actually raise the alarm bells to look further into it. It sort of just became an urban legend in this area, but suddenly, here's this woman sitting in front of Mike, confirming all of it. Aaron told Mike that a 61-year-old man named Arvin Shreve was the leader. Mike was actually very familiar with Arvin because he maintained the landscaping of the Ogden City Municipal Garden that surrounded the police department. All of the city officials knew Arvin, at least in passing. To them, he was this grandfatherly-looking gentleman who was very passionate about landscaping. To Erin, he was the monster that was ruining her life. She said that there were around 100 followers who considered him to be a prophet of God. They gave him the authority to control every piece of their lives, their finances, their education, their religion, and their sexuality. He had convinced this group that he had instructions from God to have multiple wives of all ages that he called quote-unquote spiritual wives. Arvin had taken approximately 30 spiritual wives of all ages, some as young as four years old. Arvin and most of the adult members were involved in the sexual abuse of the children in this group. At the end of her first interview, Erin told Mike, quote, I want you to know that I didn't go there to become a member of a cult. I went there to escape a bad marriage, end quote. After this first interview, Mike asked Aaron to come back the next day so that he had time to start coming up with a game plan and get some of the other officers and detectives involved. He worried that she maybe wouldn't come back or that she would change her mind and take back her statement because of everything she told him, but she agreed to meet with him the next day. From the moment Aaron left his office, Mike went into overdrive to start making a plan to get those kids out of there. Mike brought in a local defense attorney, Reed Richards, who was the county attorney at the time. Mike told Reed everything and they agreed that they didn't have any time to waste. After that interview with Aaron, Mike decided to go check out the neighborhood and see what he could find. Aaron had drawn a very detailed map of the subdivision and marked each house that belonged to the cult. Mike went in his pickup truck that had a bunch of grass clippings in the back, hoping to blend in and not call attention to himself if he were in a police car. It was laid out exactly as Aaron had said, and it was easy for Mike to pick out which houses belonged to the Zion Society because of these perfectly landscaped yards. In his book, Mike mentions how shocking it was to see these beautiful yards and perfectly kept houses, knowing that there was evil behind every door. The first house in the cult was close to the main entrance of the neighborhood. This was their security headquarters. The owner of this house was their security expert, and he acted as the personal protection instructor and firearms teacher. Kitty Corner to that house was the medical facility and security backup. 
This was where they had a stockpile of medical supplies and prescription and over-the-counter drugs. To the south was the home of a woman named Carla. She was Arvin's right-hand man. Her home was used as the sewing facility for the business they set up to make additional income. Next to Carla's house was the central dormitory for women. Aaron said that this was where Arvin's quote-unquote spiritual council lived. Carla and Arvin also shared a room in this house. Across the street was what they called the Home of Inspiration. They had been using this house to store their firearms, but had turned it into this perfectly decorated space for entertaining prospective members. Next to that house was the children's dormitory. The young girls, chosen to be Arvin's wives, lived there, away from their parents. This dormitory was supervised by several adult women who acted as their headmistresses. The girls in this house were between the ages of 6 and 18, and they had no access to a phone and were only allowed to see their parents a few times each year. Erin came back to Mike's office the next day with her Aunt Judy. Her second interview mainly focused on how she ended up in the cult and her first few months there. Erin had been working at the beauty and tanning salon Judy owned, and the women of the cult would go there to get their hair and nails done, and over time, they became friendly with Judy and Erin. They set their sights specifically on Erin after she opened up to them about some marital problems that she'd been having. Erin suffered a lot of abuse growing up and found herself stuck in a marriage with a man who had a violent temper. She wanted to get out, but she was worried about the custody battle that would happen over her six-year-old daughter. Erin was also pregnant at this time and had suffered multiple miscarriages in the past due to the stress brought on by her horrible relationship with her husband. Like these disgusting groups tend to do, they saw Erin's weaknesses and used them against her, pretending to be some sort of a safe haven for her. Cults prey on people who are vulnerable and in vulnerable positions, and unfortunately, Erin fell right into their trap. One day, the cult ladies invited Aaron to come to dinner and a movie night at one of the houses, but they didn't invite Judy as they had before. The women took this opportunity to tell Aaron that they had all escaped bad situations and found strength in each other's friendships. They painted this beautiful picture of a community where they all helped each other with food and finances and childcare, and to Aaron, this probably sounded like a miracle. Carla offered to have Aaron stay with her for a few months uh, for free until she could get back on her feet. Erin was running out of choices, and this seemed like the perfect way to get out and keep her daughter safe. Two days later, she took her daughter and left while her husband Mark was at work, and she didn't tell Mark where she was going. And when she didn't come home, Mark called Judy and asked where Erin was. At first, Judy tried to cover for Erin and tell Mark that she didn't know, but then when Erin didn't show up for work, she was worried that she had gone to stay with Carla. This worried Judy because she had started to notice changes in Erin. She talked about nothing but these new friends with their beautiful homes, perfect yards, and well-behaved kids. As I mentioned before, they'd stopped inviting Judy to dinners and were really focusing on Erin, probably because Judy was extremely suspicious. So Judy called Carla's house and asked for Erin, and Carla told her that Erin wasn't there, that she was at a doctor's appointment. Judy didn't trust Carla, and so she called the doctor's office just to check, and they, of course, told Judy that Erin hadn't been in and she didn't have any upcoming appointments. So Judy called back and demanded to talk to Erin. This was when Carla told her that Erin was there, but that she didn't want to talk to Judy or anyone for a few weeks while she sorted things out. Judy didn't love that answer, but she didn't know what else to do. Eventually, Mark showed up at the salon and told Judy that she needed to take him to see Erin. Mark had this terrible temper, and Judy was worried what would happen if she took Mark to see Erin, but she didn't know what else to do or where else to go. Judy ended up taking her adult daughter and Mark to Carla's house, but told Mark that he needed to wait in the car around the block and not make a scene. Mark agreed and stayed in the car, and Judy and her daughter approached Carla's house. When they got there, 
Arvin was the one who answered and said that Aaron just wasn't home. Right off the bat, Judy just felt like Arvin was being very strange, and she asked him if Aaron's daughter was there, and he walked them across the street to another one of the houses, and again, Judy thought it was really weird because he just walked into this other house like he owned the place. Inside were a bunch of young girls and women who seemed to be in charge of them. They saw Aaron's six-year-old daughter, who we will call Sally. Sally was very nervous and timid, not at all like her usual self. She hesitated but went to Judy and gave her a hug. Again, Judy was so confused. Sally had never acted this way before, so she tried to ask Sally if she wanted to go get an ice cream so that they could just talk to her. She wanted to get this kid out of there and figure out what was going on. Before Sally could say a word, some of the women rushed over and grabbed her out of Judy's arms. They told her that no one was taking Sally, that Aaron had put her in their care, and they were now in charge of this child. Judy wasn't having any of their crap and tried again to grab Sally and get out of there. At this point, the women all started screaming for Arvin, who burst in and shoved Judy, who shoved him back, and eventually Arvin slapped Judy across the face and grabbed Sally away. Judy originally wanted Mark to stay away from the situation, but at this point was praying that his bad temper would get the best of him and he would burst in the door at any moment. That didn't happen, so Judy and her daughter ran out of the house to one of the neighbors to call 911. When police arrived, it was because Arvin had also called 911, so they took his statement before talking to Judy. It's absolutely insane to me that they didn't see any issues here, but whatever charming tale Arvin had spun for them worked and they took his side. They told Judy that she was lucky that she wasn't being charged for attempted kidnapping, and when Mark saw the police cars going toward the houses, he pulled into the driveway and furiously told the officers that he wanted to talk to his wife, but they told Mark and Judy that they spoke to Aaron and that she didn't want to speak to any of them ever again. They told them that if they tried to come back, they would be arrested for trespassing, so they left. Carla used this interaction as ammo and told Aaron that everyone in her family was against her, that they didn't support her, and that they brought Mark here, so that meant they were taking his side. Aaron was so confused and hurt, and she said that during this time, everything was very confusing, and she constantly felt like she was in a fog and didn't know how to react to certain things or make decisions in a normal manner. She wondered later if she had been drugged because even the most basic decisions were difficult. For example, when they told her they were taking Sally to the children's ward, she didn't fight them because she didn't know what was going on. Over time, that feeling lessened, but by the time she was out of that fog, she was in too deep. It took years of careful manipulation and brainwashing to get these 100 members indoctrinated into this cult. As we get into more of the horrible details of what these people were involved in, you will ask yourself over and over and over, who the hell was this guy and how in the world did he convince these people to go along with his insanity? Cults don't just happen. They are formed by a disturbed individual who preys on vulnerable people, and that is exactly what Arvin Shreve did. Arvin was born in a middle-class neighborhood in Ogden, Utah in 1930. He was described as clean-cut, shy, and reserved as a kid. His family was involved with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, aka the LDS Church or Mormon Church. He attended Weber High School and did exceptionally well at debate, and from the moment he was able to get in front of an audience, he had this uncanny ability to be persuasive and manipulate the people around him. He won many debate competitions because he was so well-spoken. Arvin became the student body president and was on the LDS Seminary Council at his high school. In 1950, he served an LDS mission and got married to a woman named Alice the year he returned home. People used to say, quote, Arvin could make dirt turn green because he was a very talented and creative landscaper. 
Alice and Arvin were very involved in their local church, and Arvin was a well-liked Sunday school teacher. He was very engaging with his classes, and he carried over that persuasive public speaking he was so good at in school. People at church would beg him to host scripture study groups outside of usual church activities, and obviously he loved the attention and said yes. It didn't take long before these scripture study lessons turned into the Gospel of Arvin, and he started floating his different philosophies, including the idea of plural marriage, just to kind of test the waters and see how people responded to it. By this time in the 1980s, polygamy was illegal in Utah, and the LDS Church had done away with polygamy, and it wasn't part of the church's modern-day teachings. So people became really uncomfortable with Arvin bringing it up. Well, most people, obviously, there were some people who were on board with what Arvin had to say. Eventually, some of the scripture study attendees reported Arvin to their local church leadership, and they brought him in to ask him what was going on and tell him to stop with the polygamy talks. And Arvin declared that he had received a revelation from God and that he alone had been told to reinstate polygamy within the church. Again, his leaders explained that no, he didn't, and that was not part of the teachings, and if he didn't stop, he would be at risk for discipline, such as excommunication from the church. Arvin told his leaders that he would stop, but of course that was a lie just to get them off his back, and he continued exactly what he was doing. On top of that, when Arvin wasn't busy teaching lessons or landscaping, he was hiring sex workers. Police were able to track down a woman named Melanie who had had multiple encounters with him who said at first, quote, He was kind and gentle. He reminded me of a bad Mr. Rogers figure. He was not profane and he never swore. He had a soft, gentle voice and appeared to always have a happy smirk on his face, end quote. Arvin hired Melanie multiple times and eventually he started asking if she could set him up with anyone younger. Melanie introduced him to a 16-year-old girl who was using sex work as a way to make ends meet and after that... Arvin asked Melanie if she had anyone younger, 14 years old or younger. She... (sighs) This one is a really hard one for me to get through. I hate this case. She refused to help him find younger girls, and the next time they met up, Arvin was arrested by the Salt Lake City Vice Squad. After he got arrested, Arvin told Alice that the reason he was hiring sex workers was because, quote... God has instructed me to experiment with prostitutes. I don't want to do this, but I cannot offend God, end quote. Yeah, I'm sure you're really suffering, dude. Alice, for some reason, believed that story and said nothing else. Arvin eventually had a disciplinary hearing with the LDS Church where they gave him the opportunity again to stop what he was doing, but he refused and stormed out after they told him that they had no choice but to excommunicate him. That was when he really kicked things into high gear and began to form his own religion. It took years for Arvin to build up his cult following, and he kept it a secret as much as possible. He first worked on getting his wife and kids indoctrinated, and people often would describe how his immediate family looked at him as if he were a god, and they followed his every request to a T, no matter how ridiculous. He had a control over them to the point where they worshipped the ground he walked on and believed everything he said. Then he started bringing in neighbors and friends from those scripture study meetings. He would promise them a closer relationship to God and a better understanding of the scriptures and then start slowly sprinkling in his own beliefs. If you have heard about Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow, this sounds very similar to Chad's little cult following. 
Chad Daybell was very active in the LDS church and wrote novels about the end of the world. And then eventually he started forming his own cult-like following where he convinced people that he was basically a prophet and had all of these like powers. I have an episode about Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow. Um, That one is not on YouTube. It's audio only. But if you want to listen to that and kind of learn more about his situation, I will link that in the episode description. Anyways, these things take time and very careful planning. These cult leaders don't just invite people over and immediately throw out their insanity. They start slow and then add more and more as time goes on. I use this example every time I talk about cults, but it's because it's the perfect example. It's like boiling a frog. If you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it'll just jump right out. If you put a frog into a pot of cool water and slowly turn up the heat, it's cooked before it realizes it's in danger. And that is exactly what Arvin did to his followers. Eventually, he started convincing people from all over to sell their homes and move into the Northwood subdivision in Ogden so that they could slowly buy up the whole area for the cult to live together in. People started noticing all of the odd things that I mentioned earlier, and eventually the media got curious and went to interview the neighbors who told them the different strange and suspicious things that people were up to. They told reporters that the group was very secretive and shunned any outsiders. People would wave at them and they would just look away or quickly go inside their houses. The kids in the group weren't allowed to play with other neighborhood kids, and they actually never saw them playing outside. If the kids were outside, they were doing yard work to keep the landscaping and gardens looking perfect. Andrea was 16 years old at the time the cult was at its highest, and she said, quote, We mowed the lawns with push mowers in two different directions. Once all the cutting and raking was done, we took a hose with a direct stream and squirted the entire space, including the grass, to remove any stitch of cut grass. We were trained to pick up any stray leaf when we saw it, Arvin required complete and total perfection at all times, end quote. This group was also very well-dressed at all times. The men were always in shirts and ties, the women's in dresses and heels, and everyone saw that Arvin had this mesmerizing influence over the group, even from the outside perspective. Everyone in the neighborhood could see that they were trying to buy up all of these houses and believed that they were some kind of an extremist doomsday prepper type group. A former cult member said that Arvin told them, quote, one day we will have to fight our neighbors. We are well armed and we will definitely fight, end quote. It was later discovered that there were multiple home births that resulted in deaths because the group refused to go to the hospital for deliveries. People in the neighborhood saw them taking boxes and boxes and boxes of items that would arrive in the middle of the night. One of the neighbors specifically remembered the click-clack sound of the women's heels on the sidewalk as they took boxes of supplies to the different houses in the middle of the night. Eventually, one of the men in the cult moved into a house directly next door to the bishop, who was the local leader of their LDS church. And this man was instructed to move in next door to the bishop because Arvin was convinced that this bishop was spying on their group and reporting it to the top leaders of the LDS church. Each home in the cult had an intricate security system installed, which was definitely not the norm in the 80s. There was a man who lived in their neighborhood who worked for a security company that sold them all of these different security systems, but the group wouldn't allow the company workers to set up the system and instead insisted that they should teach them how to do it so they could set up the complicated systems themselves. The group was watching all of the activity in the neighborhood 24-7 and had these bright floodlights on the houses that they would turn on if someone they didn't recognize entered the neighborhood. Arvin was confronted multiple times about what was going on and he would just deny, deny, deny and say that it was all rumors that he didn't even believe in polygamy. One cult member sarcastically told a reporter, quote, We're just friends. We like each other. That's what binds most people together. People think there's something going on out here because our lawns look nice. There's something wrong with that, I guess. End quote. Yeah, 
People are suspicious because your hydrangeas look too fancy. It's just ridiculous. I don't. At one point, neighbors saw Arvin kick out his 12-year-old daughter. Apparently, she went to one of her youth leaders of the LDS church and confided that Arvin was forcing her to marry a man in the group and become one of his multiple wives. The bishop's family took her in until she could be placed with a foster family. I just can't wrap my head around how there wasn't more of an investigation done at that point, but for whatever reason, she was placed with a foster family and the cult just kept going forward. There was a young couple who moved into the neighborhood who had a narrow escape from falling in with the Zion Society. They weren't given names in the book, so I will just call them Pam and Jim. They were newlyweds, and the group was really nice and welcoming when they moved into the neighborhood. They were in a newly built house, and their yard was unfinished, and one day when they came home from work, all of their yard was completely done and beautifully landscaped. Arvin and the group had taken care of everything, and the couple asked what they could possibly do in return. Arvin told them that they didn't need to do anything, that he, quote, prayed about each plant and where God wanted it, end quote. They thought it was a little strange, but they were very grateful for the kindness that they had shown them. After that, Jim and Pam were invited to dinners and scripture study with the group. They were happy to be welcomed into the community, and everything was great. Until it wasn't. One night, they were at a scripture study with some of the cult members, and the conversation turned to food storage. Pam and Jim wanted to work on building up their own supply of emergency food storage, and this was the alarm bell the cult was looking for. This was the bait they needed. One of the cult members ran over to Arvin's house and told them that they were the perfect recruits. Over the next few weeks, Arvin started joining them for scripture study and started sprinkling in his own teachings and beliefs. Eventually, he told them that he had been excommunicated from the LDS church because he had refused to stop teaching what he called, quote, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and that he had received revelation from God about spiritual matters, and that was why he left the church. He tried to spin it as if it were a mutual agreement. Um, Arvin said that God wanted him to go out into the world and find the people who needed his teachings, and he couldn't do that within the LDS church, so he decided to leave, which was obviously just a cover and a way to spin it so that he didn't look like he got excommunicated for being insane. Looking back, Pam and Jim realized that they were absolutely being manipulated, but at the time, he spun things just right and spoke with such confidence that it made sense. They said, quote, he could tell a thousand truths and sneak in one big lie without you even realizing it, end quote. They became closer with the group who helped them finish their basement and provided them with food storage. They said that they didn't need to give anything in return, just promised to share their supplies if times got hard. Jim and Pam started to feel more and more obligated to be involved in the group because of all of the kind things they'd done for them, but things started to get more and more strange and uncomfortable. Eventually, Pam had such horrible stress and anxiety about the group that she ended up in the hospital. While she was there, some of the members came to visit her, and while the hospital staff was out of the room, they started shoving medical supplies into their bags. Pam was shocked and confronted them, and one woman told her, quote, You're sick because God wants us to take these items, end quote. She was horrified and so confused, she didn't know what to do besides pretend it just didn't happen. Eventually, Arvin and three of the cult women showed up at Pam and Jim's house, and one of these women told Pam that she was one of Arvin's seven spiritual wives chosen to be part of what they called sister councils. She quoted a passage from Isaiah 4, quote, Seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name and take away our reproach, end quote. Then they hit him with a hard sale. Each man in the group was given a sister council of seven wives, and if he wanted, Jim could be one of those men. Pam and Jim were shocked and couldn't believe they were having this conversation. 
They were not at all open to the idea, so the group started to lay it on thicker. One woman told them that she had conversations with ancient prophets and that one of them had ridden around in her car and had even driven her car with her in the passenger seat. This made them even more uncomfortable, and so Arvin jumped in. I don't know how he thought this was going to be the right connection, but he told Pam that the spirit of her deceased mother was in the room talking to him. He said, quote, Your mother wants me to tell you how happy and excited she is that her daughter is accepting the doctrine of sister councils, end quote. I'm guessing that Pam and Jim probably started to fear for their safety because these people were obviously delusional, so they couldn't ask them to leave. They didn't know what to do. Arvin went on explaining about a special training program he developed called The Sexual Way of Life, where women are taught deviant sexual practices. He showed them the pamphlets that he had put together himself that were full of porn and bragged to Jim that he had spent over $40,000 buying porn to write these materials. If you want to look at porn, just do that. Why are we, why are we spending $40,000 and making pamphlets about it? I just... It's insane. It's insane. He tried to entice Jim by offering him the chance to select his own sister council, and he told Jim how he found the recruits for his sister council using what he called finding the thread. Finding the thread was basically finding a common theme or a common ground between one of his wives and a complete stranger. Arvin's version of finding the thread was to take one of his wives to a department store and they would spy on women looking at the lingerie section. They would wait until someone was looking at something particularly skimpy and then the wife would go over and strike up a conversation. From there, she would invite this new possible recruit to dinner and then start their process of indoctrination. It's absolutely horrifying to think about, and now I'm questioning every time I've ever had a casual conversation with a stranger in a store. Finally, Pam and Jim told them to leave, and they cut all ties with the group. They immediately put their house up for sale and wanted to get out of there as quickly as they could. The cult actually ended up buying their property for well above the asking price, and Pam and Jim took that offer and ran for it. After taking away a step from the insanity, they realized how close they had been to getting trapped in a cult. Unfortunately, Aaron didn't see what was happening until it was too late. Aaron lived in Carla's house for a few months and was given this binder with all of the reading materials that Arvin had written. Aaron noticed that a lot of the wording used was from Christianity and the LDS Church to make things sound familiar enough to what people were used to learning and reading. She learned that Arvin considered himself to be a prophet and told everyone that he served in a heavenly pre-earth life as an instructor to everyone who had ever been born to prepare them for earth life. Arvin pointed to the story of the one-third of heaven being cast to hell and said, quote, Most of those who fought against God in heaven were immediately sent to hell, leaving more women on the earth than men. In his wisdom, God appointed me to assemble the women on earth, create family units, and usher the women into the next life where they will reign as gods, end quote. According to Carla, Arvin was a prophet, and the people he gathered were a special and elect group who would be taken to heaven. This is the perfect example of how cult leaders entice people to follow them by making them feel like they are special and more important than the people around them. Aaron was given a few days to study all of this and absorb the information, and then Carla came back to see her and officially bring her into the Zion Society. Carla told Aaron, quote, The blessings derived from the society are real. It is not an abstract theory or experiment or some hoped-for future possibility. The reality is now. A Zion Society has already been established, end quote. Carla explained that they knew that when God used words like Zion and Babylon, they were code names for good and evil. 
The Zion Society was good and Babylon was the outside world around them that was evil. She used three main elements to define Zion. She said that Zion is a people who are pure in heart and who are totally committed to doing God's will. They have a desire to constantly change their lives to even higher levels of righteous living and they commune personally with God. She said Zion is a place of order, cleanliness, and beauty. Their homes are pleasant, orderly, and clean. Their yards and gardens are well-maintained, beautiful, and productive. Zion is a condition where there is peace, unity, and love. Erin said that the way it was painted at the time made sense. It was maybe a little different than she was used to, but Erin liked the idea of what they were teaching. But then Carla gave her more papers called, quote, The Qualifications for a Zion Society. Carla opened this giant binder and began going over each step to, quote unquote, change oneself. Step one, lift the condemnation. Carla told Erin she knew that Erin hadn't been sharing the reading material with everyone she came into contact with. She informed her that she needed to begin doing that immediately to qualify for forgiveness. Step two, she needed to become born of God. This meant to become alive to all things spiritual and forsake anything that wasn't in line with Arvin's teachings. Then Carla quickly skimmed over a few of the steps, including understanding spiritual, carnal, and evil, obtaining the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the search and separate program, and attaining the higher level were all explained in vague and confusing terms. Aaron tried to stop her and ask further questions, but Carla evaded them or just ignored her and talked over her. Carla finished listing the rules with preparing for the days of tribulation, which was the end of the world, and finally establishing a Zion-level home, which meant keeping a home of order and beauty. Again, that perfectionism mentioned earlier came into play. Carla told her to follow four steps to bring forth those changes. Illustrate, separate, elevate, and conquer. Quote, the Lord finds ways to illustrate certain truths to your heart. He has already separated you from your associates and environment. Now you can be elevated to a higher level of understanding and conduct and would be qualified to conquer the work the Lord desires of you if you obey the things Arvin teaches. End quote. It. This whole last part sounds like gibberish. None of it makes sense. So I'm sorry if it's confusing to you because it's confusing to me as well. She told Aaron to reflect on and pray about the things they went over and that she should pray about who her eternal companion should be. Carla closed her giant binder full of rules and left Aaron to mull things over. Aaron was horrified that her fears had been confirmed. This was a polygamist cult. She was so overwhelmed at the situation and she had been fed so much insane information in a short amount of time at this point, Aaron went into survival mode. In her head, she had burned her family ties. She couldn't return to her marriage, and most of all, she was still worried about the custody of her daughter. So staying is what made sense to her, and it felt like the only way to have safety and protection. She still had that strange fuzzy feeling that she couldn't quite figure out, and she remembered thinking, quote, If all I have to do is act like I believe in all of this in order for me and my daughter to be taken care of without financial burden, I can do this, end quote. So she played along. She tried to mirror their behaviors, and for the most part, she got along with the members and felt accepted in the group. While they were a little odd, she felt that she had gained support and kindness that she hadn't felt in a long time. But, of course, that pot was getting hotter and there were still awful things ahead. Over time, Aaron saw more and more of Arvin's rules being played out. He promised the group that they were important, that they were the protectors of truth and strength, and that other people in the world would come to them and lean on them for guidance. But it was their job to invite people and find others to join, and they could do this because they had a special understanding and knowledge that set them apart from everyone else. There's that behavior that we see from cult leaders again and again. When he wasn't giving them praise, he was using fear-mongering tactics to keep them in line. He told them, quote, 
In the next few years, this earth will be rocked and buffeted by the most fearful destruction in the history of mankind. Millions shall perish. Suffering beyond human imaginations will occur, and all the prophesied plagues, diseases, earthquakes, floods, wars, and pestilence of every imaginable kind will be poured out without measure. Men shall wish to die to escape the horror of it all. I cannot even paint in words even a millionth part of the death and horror that awaits this generation. A special blessing of protection in the last days will encircle those who would bring forth plural marriage and sister councils. It is a promise that they would be protected and delivered from the vengeance of God and the cleansing of the earth. Yes, those who embark upon such programs will not taste the bitter wrath of God when it is poured out without measure upon the earth. End quote. It's a lot. He demanded perfection in every aspect of their lives. Their yards, the clothes they wore, each woman was actually given a specific color that she was allowed to wear, and then they would have to go and buy fabrics in that color and sew their own clothing. He controlled the food they ate, the weight they were expected to maintain, how they spoke. On and on and on it went. These rules, of course, didn't apply to Arvin, who was described as always wearing ugly, ill-fitting khaki pants and blue button-down shirts. He was always unkempt and overweight. One thing mentioned that makes me cringe was his obsession with black licorice. It was on every table in every house, and he kept little pieces of it in his pockets. Warm, lint-covered chunks of black licorice that he would always offer to the women and girls and insist that they ate it even though most of them absolutely hated it. He demanded respect and admiration at all times, and no one dared disagree. He was constantly telling the group that if they disobeyed him, they would go to hell. Of course, a huge belief in this group was polygamy or sister councils, and really quick, people can have whatever kind of relationship they want. If all parties are consenting adults, if you are comfortable in a polyamorous relationship or at home in a open relationship or whatever, that's great. But coercion is not consent. And most of the women in this cult were involved in this because they were brainwashed and convinced that they would go to hell if they didn't go along with what Arvin told them and they genuinely believed that. Don't get me wrong. There were for sure people here who were happy to go along with all of this, but a lot of them absolutely were brainwashed and in some ways victims themselves. And on top of that, this wasn't just polygamy. This spilled over into child sex abuse and there's absolutely no excuse for what these people did. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me explain sister councils. Sister councils were made up of one man and several women and young girls. According to Arvin, quote, sister councils cannot be understood by the carnal mind or accepted by the worldly. In mortality, the carnal and evil dominates the lives of almost all men and women. Therefore, the tender and joyous association possible among sisters of a family unit is seldom ever revealed to those in this world. The proper practice of plurality of wives is not fit for the carnal world, end quote. He just contradicts himself in every single thing he says and does. After Carla told Aaron about the lessons in the Zion Society, Arvin paid her a visit and told her it was time to learn about eternal families, saying, quote, An eternal family is composed of a husband and wife or wives, and subsequently the children resulting from their union. Great power is given to the man and his women who come to his oneness, leaving us only to imagine how incomparable the power is in a family unit that has a sister wives program where wives experience sexual love one with another, end quote. Then he went on to explain that this was a program without bonds or limitations for all eternity. He fed her total garbage about how one cannot be unified with God without living the spiritual way of life or unified with families without living the sexual way of life, quote. If you are not growing and developing sexually, you are not spiritual. 
If a sister cannot relate to her other sisters sexually, she is not spiritual even though she is following the spirit in every other area of her life, end quote. The sexual way of life was used to strengthen, unify, and bond women together and provide a means to express their love, loyalty, and devotion. Said that the physical expression of love between wives is sacred, not sensual, carnal, or evil. It is an elite program that leads women to exaltation. And God has instructed me to be in charge of my wives, including their spirituality and sexuality, end quote. Again, Arvin's playing the victim here and acting like he's just so burdened by this challenge that he's been asked to bear. It's always the same with these cult leaders. Somehow it ends up with them just being forced into having sex with everyone, even though they don't want to. It's disgusting. Disgusting. So at this point, Carla switched places with Arvin and began massaging Erin's shoulders, asking her how she felt and what she thought about all of this. Then she asked Erin if she had prayed about who her eternal companion should be. Erin was horrified at the thought, but she knew where this was going and she knew the answer that she was expected to give, Arvin. Carla expressed how proud she was of Erin and said, quote, Yes, you are listening to the right spirit. You and Arvin are supposed to be spiritual husband and wife, end quote. Arvin came back and in front of Carla began to try to have sex with Erin and when Erin started to cry, Arvin stood up and left without saying anything. Carla yelled at her, quote, You have offended your master, you have offended your god, end quote. Then she stormed out of the room, leaving Aaron completely confused and in shock. After this encounter, the other cult members ignored Aaron and would only give her short answers when she would talk to them, or they would just avoid her altogether. This was her punishment for saying no to Arvin. Arvin came back a few days later and said he came to pray for her. In the prayer, he promised that if she prepared herself, she would be filled with the spirit and complete the sister council training. Again, with the promises of eternal blessings at Arvin's side in heaven. Some of the other women came into the room after Arvin said his prayer for Erin to teach her from another giant binder full of porn and Arvin's disturbing belief system about sister councils. With conviction, they told her that sister councils existed from the dawn of time, again bringing up that they were all taught by Arvin in the pre-life instruction under God's direct supervision. <laughs> Just, oh. In Arvin's version of heaven, the man would have sex with all the wives whenever he wanted, one woman told Aaron that Arvin said, quote, God knew these husbands could only satisfy wives periodically, so he instructed me to teach the wives how to have relations with each other, end quote. That's a pretty pathetic way to say that you don't know how to satisfy a woman, Arvin, but okay. It's just so stupid. This whole thing makes me insane. As if any higher being is wasting their powers on telling this asshole that he is the one who gets to decide anyone's sexual preferences. I just, I cannot with... I can't. I just can't. Aaron pushed back and tried to tell the woman how ridiculous this whole thing was. It obviously wasn't for them or eternal salvation. It was for Arvin. But they were in too deep and they argued back saying that she just wasn't trying hard enough and that she wasn't spiritual enough that she needed, and that she needed to become more sexual and join a sister council. Aaron tried to push back again, but again was met with the same BS brainwashed rhetoric that Arvin had trained them all to say. They told her that this was all a path they needed to follow, no matter how challenging, to get to this so-called heaven at Arvin's side. They went on and on about how she needed to learn the sexual way of life and that the teachings were given directly to Arvin from God. Carla said, quote, 
I promise you that if you allow your mind to be expanded and enlightened, you will come to trust these sacred truths and be found worthy, end quote. After this presentation that Carla and the woman were clearly very proud of, Carla looked to Erin as if she were waiting for her to be excited and agree with her and say yes to everything that she said. When Erin sat in silence, she became threatening. Carla said that if she rejected the things they had just taught her, that she would be looking toward Babylon instead of Zion. Then she said that she had to keep the sister councils and plural marriage a secret from anyone outside of the group. Carla shut her binder for the night and said it was time for a game. And I wanted to give a warning uh, before we talk about the next part. I am not going to go into graphic detail, but this is a very, very upsetting piece of this story. So Carla introduced Aaron to a game that they called Rape in the Dark. All of the women and young girls would gather in the children's dormitory and pull randomly from a stack of cards. One of the cards had the word rape written on it, and whoever pulled that card had to engage in sexual acts with some of the other girls. Erin was disgusted when they started playing this game. She ran out of the room, shaking and crying, and no one followed her. Hours later, Arvin and Carla entered her room again, and Arvin said that he was willing to offer a prayer of comfort and support. Seriously? Carla said that Aaron was wasting their time and that they didn't care about her preconceived opinions or beliefs, that it was time to leave Babylon and join Zion. Quote, No one has come to us that didn't need to be taught the correct way, so listen, learn, and then quickly change. End quote. Arvin tried yet again to come onto Aaron while Carla watched. Aaron was careful about her response this time and used her pregnancy as an excuse. Carla said that she should be proud of being Arvin's spiritual life, that no sister advances without Arvin, that he was the only way to get to eternal advancement. Luckily, for the time being, they left Aaron alone. Later that night, multiple women from Arvin's sister council entered and knelt around her bed. They said prayers and gave words of encouragement, and as time went on, Aaron started to convince herself that maybe there were worse things than being in a polygamous cult. She was looking around at all of these women who believed this so intently and she started to believe that maybe it was her. Maybe she was wrong, and maybe everyone else was having such an easy time and she needed to stop pushing back. She didn't understand that she was being brainwashed. She just cared that the other women around her seemed to deeply care for her and love her, and that's what she needed. Over time, Arvin escalated and got more and more disgusting, and eventually, the children were brought into learning the sexual way of life. They were taught that to become more spiritual, they needed to be intimate with him. Each woman was assigned a different lesson from the manual to teach these younger girls, and they were told again and again that they were so special and that they were chosen because they were qualified. They were told that God was pleased with them and that they would be allowed into heaven. These were children who should have been protected by their parents. Eventually, Erin was told to teach these lessons as well, and she sunk into a deep depression. She knew what she was doing was not only illegal, but absolutely horribly wrong. Erin was in shock that she had fallen victim to this insanity and that she had progressed into grooming these girls just like she had been groomed, but she continued on. Erin eventually became trusted enough that she became Arvin's personal secretary, and that is how she knew so much about the inner workings of all the different houses. That was something that was not privy to everyone. When Erin went and turned herself into the police, she was able to give the names and ages of each of the spiritual wives. Nine of them were over the age of 20, Five of them were between the ages of 12 and 19, and four of them were under the age of 12. One of the most shocking things to me in this case is that Arvin had Carla, who was so on board and didn't even hesitate to go along with Arvin's disgusting ideas. 
Carla was born in the 1950s into an average, middle-class family in northern Utah. By all accounts, she was pretty happy and well-adjusted as a kid, but as she got into her teen years, she felt a lot of pressure to live up to her father's expectations. He was controlling and extremely religious, and eventually, she became obsessed with getting his approval. She prayed excessively and constantly read scriptures and memorized them, and she would tell her friends to repent of things that she didn't approve of them doing, and if they ignored her, she would go and tattle to their church leaders. Carla started dating an older guy when she was about 17 that her parents didn't approve of. When Carla and Jeff ran off and eloped, before she turned 18, they did their best to be supportive and welcome him to the family. Eventually, Carla and Jeff moved away from her family and started a new life in a new community and had a couple of kids. In their new neighborhood, Jeff and Carla were very involved in the LDS church and made friends quickly with the other couples. After a while, Jeff became uninterested in spending time with these neighbors and didn't really like them. Carla, on the other hand, fell in with them perfectly and Jeff and her friends noticed major changes in her. She was constantly judging people around her and just like she had when she was a kid, she would tattle to the bishop if she saw her friends doing things that she deemed immoral. Jeff was concerned and kind of embarrassed about Carla's behavior, and she started talking obsessively about what she called pyramid power and the healing powers of crystals, but not like in a fun, healthy way, in an obsessive, scary way. She started cutting off any of her friends who disagreed with her, and she began pulling away from Jeff. She would go on and on and on about how great this couple she was hanging out with were. Finally, Jeff expressed his concern, and she got mad at him and was offended that he didn't support her. This couple she was so close to was, of course, Arvin and Alice. Carla kept inviting her close friend Kate to these meetings where Arvin would teach scripture study. And Kate finally went because she wanted to see who these people were that had had such a strange effect on her friend. She was immediately freaked out and saw how bizarre this whole thing was. She said that all of the women looked the exact same, they acted the same, and they dressed the same way. Kate left this meeting early, but Jeff showed up shortly after to see who this guy was that had his wife so mesmerized. Arvin was thrilled to meet Jeff and introduce him to his teachings. Jeff left the meeting feeling horrified, but Carla was thrilled that he had been there. She told Jeff that if they moved into Arvin's neighborhood, Arvin would give his own daughter to Jeff as a spiritual wife. Carla told him this as if it were the most exciting and normal thing in the world. Jeff said they absolutely would not be moving into that neighborhood and was disgusted by the whole thing. At this point, Jeff decided to get out of town for a few days just to process everything and think about what he wanted to do moving forward. When Jeff got home three days later, his bank account had been drained and Carla had taken their kids and moved in with the Zion Society. Carla quickly rose through the ranks and became the most important of Arvin's spiritual wives. The pair moved into Carla's house together and shared the main bedroom, while his legal wife, Alice, just faded into the background, still supporting and believing his lies. Eventually, Arvin decided that he was going to require a tithing from each of the members, and Carla loved to chastise members when they didn't contribute enough tithing or when they weren't being spiritual enough. In one of his many fits of paranoia, Arvin told the women that he had a revelation that the women in the group were looking at men outside of the group and that even looking at another man was akin to adultery. Arvin can have sex with everyone and that's fine, but if they even glance at another man, they're being inappropriate. Ugh. He made a rule that they could not leave the compound unless they were in pairs or groups of three. Carla would help enforce all of these rules and helped him to co-author their teaching materials. They became focused on recruiting at all times. 
They forced the members to get rid of any other earthly things, including all of their jewelry and wedding rings. They had to burn the photos of their families and cut ties with anyone who disagreed with the teachings of the Zion Society. They also had to give all of their money to the group, and Arvin alone got to decide how they would use it. If all of Aaron's allegations were true, there were 32 children being sexually abused by most of the 70 adult members of this cult. Mike wanted to get those kids out of there as quickly as he could so he didn't waste any time building a team. He brought on Detective Dave Lucas, who was a skilled investigator with a lot of experience in violent crimes. Criminal interrogation was one of his strongest skills. They started by finding people outside of the group who could help them put together the pieces and start building the case. From what I understand, the lead-up before the arrests and getting the search warrants has to be executed perfectly. Police can't just barge in and start arresting people because then when they get to court, they can be at risk for a mistrial for not having enough evidence to convict someone. So all of this had to go perfectly and smooth. On Erin's fourth visit with Mike and Detective Lucas, she told them that some of the younger girls had come to her and told her that Carla had set them up for a quote-unquote sex weekend with a man about an hour outside of Ogden. He gave Carla money and then engaged in sexual acts while Carla watched and also participated. Mike recognized two of the names that Aaron said were forced into this event because they had been recently removed from the group as part of a custody battle with one of the members' ex-husbands. Mike followed up with the correct department on those names, and it turns out that it was actually Carla's ex-husband, Jeff, who had been seeking custody of his kids. Carla had sold her own child to this man. Jeff had told police months earlier that he believed his children were, quote, being indoctrinated into plural marriage ideology in an atmosphere of strange sexual practices, end quote. Sadly, he had no evidence and nothing to back that up, so he was in the process of hiring a civil attorney and private investigators. Mike went to a judge to subpoena Jeff and his current wife, Kate. So Kate was Carla's friend who had been tricked into going to one of the cult meetings with her, but she had booked it out of there and was completely disgusted about the whole thing. She had gotten divorced as well, and years later she and Jeff reconnected and bonded over their anger and discussed with this cult. So Jeff had made several attempts over the years to get his kids back with no luck. Eventually, he and Kate hired a PI to find out about the group and get enough information to build a case to get full custody of his kids. This private investigator was Phil Noggle, and he knew how tricky it would be to get information from the outside, but zeroed in on the lingerie business called Sweet Things that the cult was running in order to make money. Phil asked Jeff if he knew anything else about this lingerie business. He sorted through all of his different interactions that he'd had with Carla over the years, and while he hadn't thought much of it at the time, he remembered something that years earlier Carla had asked him to do. Carla had asked him if he knew any contacts in Las Vegas because she thought strippers and dancers might be interested in the lingerie that she was making. She even offered Jeff a finder's fee if he could help her locate some buyers. It was a comment that was made in passing, and he didn't give it a second thought until Phil asked. So Jeff and Phil thought up a brilliant plan. Phil's wife, Cheryl, volunteered to go in and act like she was a buyer from a Las Vegas casino. She had no previous investigative training, but she told Phil that she was all in. She wanted to do whatever it would take to help get these kids out of there. Carla fell right into their trap and agreed to meet with Cheryl. With Phil's guidance, Cheryl called Carla to set up a meeting. She told Carla that she was in town for work and was supposed to fly back to Vegas that night, but was willing to change her flight to leave the next morning if she would meet with her. They even went as far as getting Cheryl a plane ticket to Vegas so that she could not so accidentally drop it in front of Carla to shake off any suspicions that she might have, just in case. 
It was brilliant planning. So that night, Cheryl drove into the neighborhood and passed Phil, who was parked in a car down the road, just in case for backup. Cheryl was relieved that she could have him there in seconds if needed. As Cheryl pulled into the driveway, Arvin greeted her at the car, and the cult women were very welcoming and overly happy to see her. They took her inside to meet the women who would model the lingerie for her and showed her around the basement facility where they sewed all of these pieces. They had every type of themed lingerie you could possibly imagine. Cheryl put on her best show asking questions about the business and commenting that a lot of the women from the neighborhood were involved and Carla said it was just because they all loved to sew. Nothing strange here, we all just love sewing. So part of this business was a fashion show that they would do to model the lingerie for potential buyers. During the fashion show, all of the young women, um, all around their early 20s, were very comfortable and not shy about their bodies at all. It was clear that they did this a lot. They strutted around and showed off the pieces and did sexy dance moves, which would be totally fine if this wasn't all part of a horrifying sex cult operation. During the fashion show, Carla introduced Cheryl to her 14-year-old daughter, and Cheryl brought out the big guns and asked if the younger girls ever modeled. Carla didn't even hesitate and immediately instructed her 14-year-old daughter and a few of the other young girls to go and change into the lingerie. Carla proudly told Cheryl that a local stripper taught all of the women, including her underage daughter, how to strip and perform sexy dance moves. She bragged that her daughter was a natural. And that was exactly what Cheryl needed to confirm that they absolutely had a case for Jeff's daughter. Carla allowed Cheryl to film the fashion show, which became immediate evidence that these young girls were being put into inappropriate sexual situations. After the fashion show, Cheryl gave tons of compliments and promised to return with an offer for the purchase. Carla was thrilled and invited Cheryl to see their storage facility. Cheryl toured the warehouse where massive amounts of this lingerie was stored, and Carla said they didn't have any buyers yet, but they were organizing a big fashion show and hoping to get some local contacts. Carla just could not shut up. She gave Cheryl a ton of information about her life and her kids, and Cheryl asked if the girls attended a public school, and Carla said no, that they have a private school they run in their neighborhood called Midland Academy, and there were about 30 students. None of the teachers were certified, and later when this was brought up in court, Carla said that they had amazing test scores and were scoring higher than students at public school, which was absolutely untrue. These children had been pulled out of school, and most of them struggled to get an education after they left the cult because they had fallen so far behind. Because again, I can't imagine that they were being taught curriculum outside of the insanities of the Gospel of Arvin. Cheryl also asked Carla if her daughter lived with her, and she confirmed Aaron's story. All the young girls lived down the street with another woman in what they called the children's boarding school. Carla insisted it was a kind of dormitory and that the girls loved living there together. Carla asked Cheryl if she wanted to learn more about the business, and Cheryl accepted and ended up going to a boutique showing with her a few weeks later. They attended the show together where Carla talked to potential buyers about the business, and then Carla invited her back to the house for dinner and a movie night. Again, Cheryl was greeted by Arvin, and she went along with all of this, and eventually, Carla told her that she wanted to invite her to an orientation to learn about the group's belief, and without missing a beat, asked Cheryl to move in with them. Cheryl wasn't completely shocked this was all part of the plan, so she made an excuse that she would need to talk to her husband and asked if he could come to the meeting as well. Carla said that her husband could come to the second meeting, but Cheryl had to attend the orientation alone first. When Cheryl attended the orientation, it was at one of the houses that she hadn't been to before. She couldn't help but notice how freakishly clean every inch of the house was and that all of the women all talked and moved and acted the same. 
Cheryl asked if she could record the presentation for her husband, and Arvin agreed, telling her, quote, I have nothing to hide, end quote. Suddenly, everything made sense while Cheryl listened. The women's odd behavior, the extreme cleanliness, the sexual way that they all acted towards each other. She would ask Arvin questions to clarify certain things, and he would just ignore them. Cheryl saw some of the kids there. They just sat on the sofa, not allowed to talk or move. All the kids dressed alike and acted the same. Several hours later, Cheryl was told that she needed to fill out an application to be considered for membership, and at this point she was terrified that they would see right through her act and call her out on being a fraud, but it seemed that everything went well because they told her that she actually didn't need to fill out the application, that they could just tell she was, quote, pure in heart and would be a good fit. All of this was enough information for Jeff to go after Carla. He called Carla and said he wanted the kids immediately or he would go after all of them and go to the police. Carla's attorney called an hour later saying he could have the kids if he called off the police. Jeff got his kids out and then a few months later was when Aaron went and told Mike what was going on and Mike contacted them and got all of this information. With everything they had gathered from Aaron and the private investigation performed by Phil, they had enough to get things really moving. They wrote up multiple search warrants for approval, and Mike asked the judge to quickly sign the warrants for the houses and an immediate arrest warrant for Arvin. Mike felt it was necessary to get a no-knock warrant because he worried that Arvin would try to flee and his cult would do anything to help him hide or destroy evidence. Aaron told him that months earlier, after Jeff contacted Carla, Arvin believed that there would be a raid, so the group had already burned boxes and boxes of pornographic material and destroyed other evidence. Aaron said that there were also hidden semi-automatic assault rifles and other weapons in the compound. The judge signed the warrants for the houses that they had enough evidence for, but some of the homes, including the one with the mysterious backyard bunker, were not approved for search warrants. Mike knew it would take seriously careful planning to pull this off. Mike put together a team, and they decided that they would make their move at 6 a.m. the following morning. They had warrants for eight of the 12 homes and decided that they would need four officers per house. One officer would be the team's leader, and the other three officers would secure the scene and the occupants and complete the search. As an added security measure, two officers would be stationed near the homes that they weren't able to get warrants for. That alone would take 40 officers to pull off. There were other assignments on top of that to be done, totaling a team of almost 70 people. Sergeant Don Moore was the head of the SWAT team and would have his team on standby a block away in case things went south. They had five tactical officers two canine officers, and two paramedics at the ready. Once the homes were secured, that team would provide support transportation and backup as needed. On top of that, they brought on another six officers to patrol traffic um, to block the entry into the subdivision because they knew this raid would draw a lot of attention. The last thing they needed was the media showing up on the lawns of this cult while they were trying to do the searches. Detective Lucas would keep track of the evidence, which would be a lot of work. He had a team of CSI techs there to carefully bag and tag each item. Detective Lucas had been in the interviews with Aaron and knew what kind of evidence they were specifically looking for. There was also a team that would be taking photo and video evidence of every inch of this search. Another extremely important part of this raid was to have social workers on hand to interview and take care of the kids. Katie Larson, Laura Ashdown, and Jan Hayes were all very experienced and well-respected in the investigative and mental health community. They worked in the Weber Morgan Children's Justice Center and were very well equipped to handle the job ahead of them. What they were trying to pull off was insane and they needed all the advantages that they could get. So the head detectives were the only ones fully in the know about what was going on. Every other person involved was just told to be at the station at 4 a.m. to get their briefing. They couldn't risk even a whisper getting to the cult before this raid. At 4 a.m. on August 2nd, 1991, 
All of the officers and social workers met at the municipal building for the briefing. With less than 24 hours of planning, the team got their assignments and headed out to the subdivision. By 5.30 a.m., they were all parked at the staging area south of the subdivision waiting for go time. At 6 a.m., a call came over the radios, quote, all units move in. The team sped quietly towards their assigned homes, traffic officers blocked off the intersections, and officers flooded the neighborhood. In three minutes, all teams reported that their target homes were secure and that all occupants were accounted for. Incredible. It went perfectly, and none of the terrible scenarios they had planned for happened. Everyone was caught off guard, and there were no altercations. The raid was a huge success. Mike ran from house to house looking for Arvin, and the cult members said smugly that he had left the area the day before because, quote, he'd been inspired. They began going over each house, photos and videos were taken, evidence was brought to the correct places, and all of this took hours to organize. The most difficult part for everyone was removing the kids from the houses. The social workers were as sensitive and calming as possible, but these kids didn't want to leave. It was the only life they'd ever known, and they were terrified. The children were taken into police custody and loaded into the Department of Family Services vans to go into foster homes. Even though they knew that they were doing what they needed to do, that separating these kids from the situation was the right thing, it was still very traumatic and terrifying for everyone involved. Each house that was part of this raid had different and important evidence. First up was the cult library. There were hundreds and hundreds of books on shelves in a basement. Each one was carefully cataloged with a library checkout system. There were books on how to make fake IDs, how to make bombs, a U.S. Army book of sniper tactics, books on martial arts, something called the Shooter's Bible, among many other topics. Next was the girls' dormitory for Arvin's younger spiritual wives. This house was supposed to be the perfect example of a Zion home. The cult called it the show house because new recruits would be taken to this house as an example for what they could have if they joined. This home had two levels with a landing at the front door. On the first level, there was a headboard from a bed frame attached to a wall that looked like a kind of altar of some kind. There was a shelf holding flowers and a candle, a picture of Jesus, and a switch next to the front door that turned on an alarm that sounded similar to emergency sirens that blared throughout the entire house. When Mike entered the living room area with another detective, Mike Ashman, there were 20 women and girls in pajamas, all with blank, emotionless looks on their faces. Upstairs, the kitchen was perfectly clean, there were no dirty dishes or food to be seen, and everything in this room was pink. Pink cherry blossom floor tiling and pink curtains and pink wallpapers. Almost every wall in this house was covered with carpet, which was strange at first. Everything in the bathroom was perfectly laid out. Towels were all folded and hung at an exact specific length. All the toothbrushes were lined up with the bristles all facing the same direction. All of the bathroom supplies were perfectly organized. Um, a woman named Dawn, who was 10 years old at the time of the raid, said, quote, I became a perfectionist out of fear. I was always fearful of making a mistake. I never felt I was good enough. When I was punished, I had to sit still for half an hour and say nothing. I could not move except for my eyeballs, end quote. Another survivor who escaped before the raid remembered, quote, we were told we would go to hell if we weren't perfect. In reality, we were already living in hell, end quote. In the bedrooms, they found that everything, again, was perfectly organized. They had a lot of lingerie in all of the drawers and that color-coding clothing system that I mentioned earlier. A survivor named Andrea said, quote, Our clothes had to be suggestive in style. Whether it was tight skirts or low-cut blouses, our gardening shorts were very short, end quote. Aaron had given Mike a map of where all of the weapons were hidden throughout this house, but as they searched, they couldn't find any of them. Mike sat on the floor going back over this map, 
and he was unconsciously pulling at the carpet when suddenly it lifted. He realized that the carpet was loose, so he lifted it up a little bit more. The carpet came up completely with a ripping sound like Velcro. Under the carpet was a hinged floorboard, and when they lifted it up, there were two loaded, semi-automatic assault rifles. Suddenly, the carpet all over every wall made sense. The carpet was hiding compartments. The map made more sense, and they began searching again and found multiple hidden gun compartments in the house. Andrea later told Mike, quote, Children were taken to a shooting range and taught to shoot and defend their homes for the end of the world, end quote. In the basement, there was a small family room and a few small bedrooms with children's bunk beds and toy boxes. Again, the walls were covered with carpet, and they found that the carpet was hiding a closet under the stairs. When they opened the door, the closet seemed small compared to the length of the staircase, and as they looked further, they realized there was a false wall that opened up to a hiding space big enough for two to three people. Um, a survivor named Amber said, quote, The adults were obsessed with the book The Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom. They had hidden rooms built in all the houses that were soundproof. We were hidden in them when social services came around, end quote. Next in the search was the Sister Council house. This was where Arvin lived with his adult wives, including his legal wife, Alice. This house was very similar to the girls' dormitory. Carpet covered the walls with hiding places behind it, and everything was specifically placed and in perfect order. In this particular home, they had a scale in the kitchen, and Laura, who was 18 at the time of the raid, said, quote, We were given a specific weight to maintain. We were weighed daily, and it was recorded on a chart. Carla and the other women would humiliate us in front of the others if we weighed too much, end quote. One of the houses was the storage house and motor pool. Uh, the entry had a cabinet that was full of car keys, and each key was color-coded and marked with a number that corresponded with a chart on the wall. And this chart tracked the names of the members and recorded when the vehicles were checked in and out. This house also had more carpet and more hidden weapons. The basement had rows and rows of storage shelves full of over-the-counter and prescription drugs in hospital-sized containers stacked 24 to 36 bottles deep. There were hundreds of bottles, and later it was estimated that this was valued at $50,000 of these drugs. The other houses were used as homes for the other cult members. One of them had portholes between rooms and air vents that were just there to spy on the other rooms. There was also a secret gun portal that led to the outside of the house that was camouflaged to blend in with the outside of the house. All of the homes had boxes and boxes of processed meals, soaps, paper goods, and emergency supplies stacked ceiling high. Up next was Carla's house. This was considered to be the most sacred place where Arvin received his disgusting divine inspiration. The main bedroom was decorated in bright pinks with pink lace curtains and a floral bedspread. In this room was another one of those light switches that sent the siren blaring throughout the entire house. And there were also dozens of sex toys and Arvin's instruction manuals. And one of these sex toys was lying on top of a Bible, which I just feel like is so wrong. Um, I will be honest, it made me sick to my stomach, and I could barely get through the quotes from the young girls um, explaining how Arvin and Carla would justify his alleged quote-unquote need to have sex with them. At this point, I had to put the book down and, like, walk away and go do something else for a while because it was so incredibly upsetting. I simply cannot repeat the nightmare that happened to these girls in this room, so if you need to know... There is some details in the book. Again, it doesn't go into graphic detail, but I am going to just leave it at this. Girls of every age were subjected to Arvin's perverted demands and coerced into awful situations. And that is all I will say. That is all you need to know. Carla's home was called the Beautification Home, and this held the Sweet Things Business Headquarters 
and the sewing machines and all of the fabric. They also had a sink and mini salon for coloring and cutting hair, and the women and young girls were all expected to learn how to do their makeup and be wearing makeup pretty much at all times. As I mentioned, there were four houses that they weren't able to get search warrants for, and as they did the searches of the eight that they did have warrants for, the detectives couldn't help but wonder if Arvin was maybe being hidden away in one of the other homes or in the backyard bunker. The children and most of their moms were taken to the Children's Justice Center for questioning and to be placed with foster families. Some of the kids were terrified and crying. Others that were a little bit older were angry and defiant. Social workers separated the kids from their moms so that they could interview them without having issues or any kind of interference from the adults. The kids did start opening up to them and they would stop these interviews as soon as the kids were too tired or too upset to continue talking. They learned a lot of awful information from these kids. They were told that the older women in the group taught the younger girls how to be sensual and seductive. The older girls had to make a scrapbook of what they thought were representations of their personal sexual nature. This included photos of clothing and hairstyles that were supposed to be sexy. They all said that they were shown pornographic visual aids to learn how to do what they were expected to do. Multiple boys and girls accused many of the adults of sexual assault and many of them had injuries. As the adults came in to see their kids, the detectives would try to ask them questions that they would all answer in these perfectly rehearsed ways. They avoided questions and defended Arvin, saying that they believed in all of his spiritual teachings. During the interviews, the kids would go into detail of what had been happening, and they didn't know that anything was wrong because they had never known anything different. But when the social workers brought out the anatomically correct dolls that are used as a tool during questioning, the kids would get really, really upset and completely shut down. Mike called Erin to ask if she knew what was going on with these dolls. Erin said that months earlier, when one of the ex-husbands showed up to try to get his kids, there was a chaotic outburst and a neighbor heard and called the police. Arvin said that he, quote-unquote, received revelation that police were going to do a raid at that point, but it didn't happen. He thought that they were going to do a raid, so the group burned a ton of stuff, destroyed evidence, and removed a lot of items from the home. Arvin became more and more paranoid, so he had the men dress up like police officers, and he developed what he called an anti-interrogation seminar, where the adults and children were coached to answer questions and lie about the things that were going on. They were all warned again and again, just like with everything else, that if they ever told anyone what was happening there, they would go to hell. Aaron said that Carla was able to get a hold of some of the dolls that were used by social workers to help children explain their experiences because she knew that at some point, they would be asked to use these dolls to explain what had been happening to them in this disgusting cult. And Carla used these dolls to scare the kids. She told them that they were tools of the devil and that they were to never look at or touch these evil dolls. Three days after the raid on August 5th, 1991, police in Cedar City arrested Arvin. Apparently, he turned himself in and told the Cedar City police that the Ogden police were looking for him. The Cedar City PD called Mike and told him that they could detain Arvin for eight hours. Cedar City is about 300 miles away from Ogden, so about a four-hour drive. So Mike and Detective Lucas jumped in a car and headed to Cedar City as quickly as they could. Arvin was 65 years old at this time, but he looked much older, according to Mike. He also said that he just looked like any old grandfather that you would never suspect of being an awful human being. When Mike and Detective Lucas got there, he asked Mike how the children were doing and told him he'd, quote, be happy to clear up this misunderstanding, end quote. 
At first, he was ready to be interviewed then and there, but as Mike and Detective Lucas told Arvin he was under arrest for sexual abuse of a child and they couldn't listen to what he had to say until they read him his Miranda rights, he then got his rights and decided that he wanted to talk to an attorney before he would give them any information. So they did what they had to do and put him in cuffs and put him in the back of the car to start the very long and uncomfortable drive back to Ogden. Mike and Detective Lucas had formed a plan to get Arvin talking. Mike and Detective Lucas both were in leadership positions at their local branches of their LDS churches, which was the same church that Arvin had been excommunicated from. They started talking about their church callings, discussing philosophy and scriptures, which they knew would get Arvin heated. Arvin just couldn't help himself. He would interrupt them and told them that he wanted to tell them about their neighborhood, and they kept telling him that they couldn't talk to him because he said he wanted to talk to his attorney first. So, for the four-hour drive, they continued talking about church and religion, telling Arvin to mind his own business, and finally Arvin demanded that his right to seek counsel was waived. He just couldn't help himself. He fell right into the trap. It was perfect. He just had to tell these detectives about his cult. In his book, Mike said that he wondered at this time, did he think he was going to convert us? Clearly, Arvin took the bait, and with his self-absorbed, holier-than-thou attitude, he couldn't resist giving them a piece of his mind. They took Arvin to the Highway Patrol office in Salt Lake to begin their interrogation because the media was already swarming the police department in Ogden, so they took the next closest one that they could to do this interview. They made sure to tape Arvin's dismissal of his Miranda rights, and Mike spent some time talking to Arvin, uh, just in general, to gauge his cues. Mike is a very talented criminal profiler, and part of that is because he is so good at picking up on people's subconscious tics. Mike started with basic questions, pretending to take an interest in Arvin and his life, and when Mike asked him if he'd ever been arrested, Arvin said no, which was a lie. And as he answered that, Mike said that he noticed a twitch in Arvin's neck and shifting of his eyes. Mike recognized the discomfort signals, and since he already knew the truth, that Arvin had been arrested, that proved that that was a tick that indicated he was lying. He goes more into detail about this in his book, and it's, again, fascinating to hear from a detective exactly how they pinpoint these things. So Mike told him that he knew everything about Arvin, so there was no point in lying. He said, quote, I'm going to give you only one example of how much I know about you, and then we're going to start talking again. If you tell me the truth, I will make sure the court knows that you accepted responsibility for any wrongdoing. But if you lie to me one more time, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure you die in prison. Do you understand me? End quote. He told Arvin that he knew that he'd been hiring sex workers, and that was why he'd been arrested. And Arvin calmly said, quote, My wife and I discussed hiring a prostitute. I told her God had directed me to do it in order to gain additional knowledge in regarding sexual things. She felt it was the right thing to do and encouraged it. I only did it a few times, end quote. The stuff that this guy comes up with is just unbelievable. He then went on to say, quote, I want you to know that I often wished that God would have told me to do something other than that, but I will do anything for God, end quote. Again, with the insisting that, oh, it's so hard for me. It's so hard for me that I had to do this. It makes me insane. I don't know how people can get through these interviews where they have to look at this person just feeding them this garbage and not... That's why I'm not a police officer. That's why I'm not a detective. I can sit here with a microphone in front of a camera and speculate as much as I want about how ridiculous this whole thing is. And I just think that these detectives that are able to stay calm in these situations and continue interviews with this insanity happening, icons.
It's the kind of detective work that we love to see that I wish we could see all the time. As the interview went on, he tried to make excuses for everything. He said that he never said he was a spiritual leader or a prophet, that they were all just friends in the neighborhood. Mike assumed that Arvin must not have known that they raided all the houses and already knew everything. He tried to say that these sexual assaults were, quote, initiated by the children in a very natural and casual manner, end quote. He said that he wasn't trying to place blame on them and said that it was just a way for them to bond in a way that society wasn't used to. The absolute garbage that came out of this man's mouth was truly unbelievable and, in my opinion, he was either so mentally ill that he genuinely believed that God told him to do the things that he was saying or he just said all this crap knowing full well that it was wrong and disgusting and evil but had somehow convinced himself that his justifications were the truth. There is no rhyme or reason to it. This is a disturbed individual. So first he tried to blame what was happening on the children that he was abusing. And then he pointed the finger at the LDS church leaders for what he was doing, saying that because they excommunicated him, an evil spirit was then able to take over his life. Mike kind of called him out on this and was like, are you seriously trying to tell me that the devil made you do it? And then he tried to backtrack and fix those words that he had used. Then he tried to cover for the other adults, saying that none of the other adults knew what was going on and had nothing to do with it. Mike went through each child's confession and one by one, Arvin admitted to the events, but tried to place the blame on the children. Because again, this person is evil and completely out of his mind, in my opinion. At the end of the interview, they had 30 confessions to felony sex abuse. Arvin's arraignment happened the following day. So in a matter of five weeks, they had moved the case from discovery to prosecution, which is incredible. Mike said, quote, the situation wasn't the norm. Such quick progress was only made possible because dozens of police officers, social workers, and prosecutors worked tirelessly and selflessly toward the common goal of rescuing abused children, end quote. When Mike and the prosecuting attorney, Reed Richards, walked into the courtroom for the arraignment, Arvin waved Mike over to him and asked him, quote, What else can I do to help with your investigation? I've already confessed to everything. What else can I do? End quote. Mike told him that because he confessed, the children would not have to testify against him in court. And he said that the plan was to arrest a number of the cult members and Arvin should encourage them to come forward and confess so that the children wouldn't have to go through their trauma of testifying. Arvin said that he would, quote, do his best. Even after confessing to everything he did at the arraignment, Arvin pled not guilty, which meant that the case would move forward into court trials. Arvin's defense team tried to say that he should be able to go home and not be held in jail until the court date, saying that he turned himself in so he clearly wasn't a flight risk. Reed Richards countered that he absolutely was a flight risk, seeing as he fled Ogden on or near the day of the raid. Arvin admitted that he had been traveling to Arizona to look for a new place to live, and the prosecution team all worried that he would take off again, and they didn't think it was appropriate for him to return to the neighborhood with the children he had been abusing. Unfortunately, the judge decided to release him until his trial on the agreement that he would need to make arrangements to live outside of the victim's neighborhood and wear an ankle monitor, which I think is a very low bar to set, but here we are. Detectives were able to locate those two men that the girls accused of Carla setting up those sex weekends with. They both admitted to paying Carla to set up the encounters and said that she participated in them. Within a few days, they were arrested and booked into jail. At this point, there were 11 suspects who were responsible for more than 700 sexual assaults. The charges against the other cult members were stacking up as lower-class felonies, all dealing with child victimization. A few days later, Mike brought Carla in for an interview. Carla knew that Arvin had confessed to sexually assaulting her daughter. 
The detectives had a plan set up for how they were going to explain all of the charges being brought against Carla in an attempt to get her to confess, but they didn't need to do any of that because she came in and began confessing on her own. She also said that she was in regular contact with Arvin and that she told him she was coming to confess. Mike asked if Arvin told her to confess, but she dodged the question saying, quote, I want to spare my daughter from having to testify. I did those things to her, end quote. So just like that, charges were filed and she was booked into jail. Over the following weeks, one by one, each of the women in Arvin's sister council came to the office and confessed. All of them were eventually arrested and booked into jail or ordered to appear before a judge to face criminal charges. Now that this group was booked into jail, they had to work on prosecuting them. In all, they had arrested Arvin as the leader, one man, and nine women who were members of the cult. Beside Arvin's, besides Arvin's sister council, there were at least two others. The man they arrested was one of the heads of a sister council, but the other sister council leader hadn't been arrested because none of the children accused him of assault. Erin was in a particularly tricky situation. She had participated in the crimes being committed, but she was a victim sort of herself. They decided to give Erin immunity in exchange for her testimony and continued cooperation. Without her coming forward, they wouldn't have most of the information that they currently did, and the arrest most likely wouldn't have happened. During all of this, the juvenile court decided the children would be released from protective custody and returned to their parents. As soon as the kids were reunited with their parents, many of them hired attorneys who fought against the detectives trying to get more interviews. This slowed everything way down. The parents also began downplaying the abuse and told the kids to keep quiet. They were all ordered to go to therapy for the adults and the children, but unfortunately, there was no system in place to make sure that that actually happened. It took two long years for the cases to slowly play out as each charged cult member moved through the court system. Thankfully, the judges sided with the prosecution and found that the state had provided sufficient probable cause to support each charge. These poor kids had to endure repeated questioning and cross-examinations in all of the cases. One of the defense attorneys was questioning one of the very young victims and became extremely harsh and insensitive, grilling her in front of the court. Mike overheard a reporter interviewing this attorney after the trial asking, quote, Do you think you were too tough on the child? And he replied, quote, I didn't consider it tough at all. She hasn't seen anything yet, end quote. Absolutely awful. I cannot wrap my head around how these defense attorneys are so focused on winning a case that they are going after children in a courtroom. So these hearings and this process went on for about two years. There was a lot of back and forth between the cult members trying to get plea deals and those getting rejected. And most importantly, these poor kids having to sit through all of this and relive every detail over and over. Finally, in an effort to avoid embarrassment of the evidence getting out to the public, each of the cult members on trial changed their pleas to guilty and every charge resulted in a conviction. Most of them were sentenced to one 15-year prison term, but unfortunately, some of them were given the option to complete a 90-day work release program and pay restitution as long as they discontinued any contact with the other group members and entered an intensive supervision program. People were furious, including myself, (laughs) and the detectives who worked on this case. How was that any kind of punishment for what these people had done? Arvin's legal wife, Alice, was not charged with any crimes, and Carla was convicted of sexual exploitation, aggravated sexual abuse, and sodomy. Each charge held a minimum mandatory sentence of five years to life. Arvin was found guilty of two counts of sodomy and two counts of sexual abuse of a child. 
Once it was all said and done, they decided to go with four charges versus the 30 or more that he confessed to because those things alone would be enough to get Arvin life in prison without having to make all of these kids testify against him. In the end, they were trying to get these people behind bars while keeping the kids away from it and safe as much as they could. They'd already been through so much. Before Arvin was read his final conviction, he whispered to his attorney that he wanted the lead investigator, Mike, to stand by him for his sentencing. The judge granted it and said, quote, if the investigator would like. Mike had to think quickly at this point and said that he'd been half hoping that the judge would deny this request so he didn't have to go over there. And Mike worried that maybe the judge would be more lenient if he saw the lead investigator standing at Arvin's side. But Mike knew that Arvin's followers were in that courtroom and he felt that standing by Arvin for the sentencing would make them trust him and come forward to confess on their own. Arvin whispered a thank you to Mike, and the judge gave his sentence of 20 years to life. Arvin was clearly shocked because he'd been expecting a lesser sentence. Personally, I don't think there is any sentence big enough to cover the things that he did. He entered the Utah State Prison the next day. He appealed his sentence, but lost. Thank goodness. In all, there were 746 counts of sexual crimes against minors. Arvin was responsible for 390 of those, Carla for 113, and the remaining eight women in the sister council for 226, and the two non-cult members, 17. Detectives had planned to go after more of the cult members with additional charges, but it was just taking the courts too long. These kids had suffered for years leading up to this and for two years in court, so they decided that they would stop the prosecutions in order to spare the children. As I mentioned before, unfortunately, most of these children were returned to live with the people who had put them in harm's way. And even though they were told to stay away from each other, many members of the cult continued their efforts while Arvin and Carla were in prison. Arvin and Carla were both informed that their phone calls were being recorded, but they didn't seem to care. They had cult members who visited them in prison every week and talked to them on the phone on these recorded calls. Carla and Arvin weren't allowed to communicate, and Carla began having these revelations of her own. She told the outside members to put $500 in her prison account and that, quote, the prison warden is interested in our group and ideas. The door is wide open for better things, end quote. She publicly said that she had denounced Arvin's teachings in the Zion Society, but in prison, she was telling cult members that she had converted her cellmate. When this cellmate was released, Carla told the members to help her find a house and get her schooling. Carla served her sentence and then moved to a rural community near three other Zion Society members. Some of the members joined other polygamist groups or just disappeared off the radar. The adults in this case just went on with their lives, but the children involved in this tragedy had to fend for themselves and get through all of the horrors that they'd experienced. Arvin died in prison in August of 2009 at age 76, and I hope he had a terrible time in prison. I really do. The most important people in this story are the survivors of this nightmare. 28 years after the raid, two women reached out to Mike. Amber and Andrea had been some of the many children removed from this cult. This was a really tough situation for Mike, who described this case as one of the most difficult and disturbing cases in his career. The officers involved in breaking up the Zion Society were also deeply affected and traumatized by what they had seen and dealt with in this case. Mike said that he had pretty much buried it away until these women reached out to him, hoping that they could answer some questions to help them make sense of some of the things that they went through as kids. Mike wasn't ready to relive the case at first, but eventually he decided that it was time. Andrea was 14 at the time of the raid into the cult. She suffered a great deal because of the cult, and it didn't help that even after she got out, her parents never apologized for what she went through because of their actions. For a long time, she lacked self-confidence or security. When she turned 30, she decided to go to college and worked really hard. 
She, like many of the kids, didn't get the education she needed at a young age, so college was very challenging. But she worked her butt off and hired tutors and did everything she could to give herself a better life. Her professors saw the incredible effort and drive she was putting in, and her school offered her a full-ride scholarship. She went on to get a master's degree in social work. On Mike's YouTube channel, Profiling Evil, he has a video where he has a really good conversation with the other survivor who reached out to him, Amber. And I will have that uh, linked in the description of this episode, so you can check that out. Amber is incredible. All of these women are. I will link all of the videos on Mike's channel about the Zion Society and his interviews with the survivors as well as his book because I can't even begin to scratch the surface of what these people went through and now how incredible they are today after overcoming a lot of it. After that first conversation with Andrea, Mike did his best to get into contact with all of the children, who were now adults, who survived the cult. These women went through hell and back and have somehow found ways to be successful and happy. They have families, they have jobs, they have lives. They still face struggles. Many of them spent years in the cult and fell behind in school, so they weren't able to get a good education, which made it really hard for them to get jobs. At the time, the court had ordered all of the parents and children to get counseling, but none of them, not one, of the survivors got counseling. The system put into place to make sure that these girls were given the therapy they needed didn't actually do anything to follow up on this, and they all suffered for decades because of that. In 2020, Mike helped the women to set up a video conference call. They had all gone their separate ways and hadn't wanted to talk to each other after everything they went through, but they were ready. A group of the women got onto the call with Mike and Reed Richards. They talked, they laughed, they cried. Before this call, Mike got in touch with Melanie Scarlett from the Utah Office for Victims of Crime and invited her to join the call as well. The survivors were all informed that they would be given access to counseling and they would help them to get reimbursement for the mental health counseling they'd sought out for themselves over the years. The state also agreed to pay for counseling for all of the women who had moved out of the state as well. Dr. Brad Mortensen, the president of Weber State University, was also invited to this call, and he told them how thankful he was to be trusted with their stories and promised them that the university would help them get an education if they wanted. Whether it was a GED or a PhD, he would help them to find grants and scholarships. No matter what their goals were, he was going to help these women. I think it goes without saying that there is nothing that can take back or completely fix what these women went through as kids, but their stories are also important and each of them deserve a chance at a healthy and happy life, and I truly hope that they were able to find at least some peace there. There is no way to reconcile situations like this, but many of them have done incredible work to make the world a better place so that they can protect their own children and others from ending up in a situation like they endured. I feel like I don't even know how to end this episode. Um... But thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Like I said, I will link the book and Mike's channel and all of those videos in the description so that you can look more into these incredible survivors because of all of this. They are the most important ones. Um, look into that if you would like to and make sure that you give that support and say some kind words uh, in the comments because you never know if they might watch one of these videos. Um, so there is that. Until next time, try to put some good out into the universe because seriously, yikes a bikes. It is awful out there. Uh, I will talk to you soon. Thanks for being here. Bye.